0: Last week we actually started a quick verse-by-verse fly-through the book of Jonah. And uh, we're going to carry on with that this morning. Um, Last week we were looking at the fact that Jonah was called uh, of the Lord, and obviously he rebelled, he tried to run away from the Lord, and talked about the foolishness of trying to run away from a God that's everywhere. Um, And we looked at the fact that Jonah has gone down. He went originally down to Joppa, to the port of Joppa, uh, and then eventually gone onto the boat, Uh, He paid his fare and isn't it so often the case that the money that God had provided him he used to run away from the Lord and so often we allow things in our lives God provides us things and we use the very things that God gives us as a means to go away from him so often that happens in our lives and then Jonah got onto the boat and went down to the bottom of the boat and as you know the story then after the the waves started uh, kicking up a bit they threw him overboard and he went down into the belly of the the big fish, I looked at that last time, and uh, he went down to the bottom of the mountains, and then it talks about him going down into Sheol, and as we said last week, there are certain Bible commentators that believe that Jonah actually died. Um, He was as a model of what would happen later with Jesus. Um, And so Jonah got to the lowest possible point, and when he was at his lowest possible point, he cried out to the Lord. And again, so often that's the way it is with us. We have to get to that real rock-bottom point before we actually realize that we need to call back out to the Lord, and that's what Jonah did. And then Jonah starts his upward journey, comes up out of the fish, and that's where we got to at the end of uh, chapter two last time. Uh, the last verse, verse ten of chapter two, just says, "And the Lord spoke unto the fish, and vomited it out. Sorry, vomited out Jonah upon the dry land." And we said again that you know the fish was obedient. You know God had prepared the fish and got the fish at the right place, and the fish did what the Lord asked. Jonah, this prophet of the Lord was rebelling and again it's so often the case isn't it that it doesn't matter whether you know you've got people up the front or people with certain robes on or whatever they choose to wear that would suggest their, their spiritual superiority the fish was more obedient and sometimes people that are in lowly places are more pleasing to God than some of the people that have the appearance of being righteous but maybe their hearts aren't where God would have them be so uh, the heart that God looks at and so we carry on now, going into uh, chapter 3 of uh, the book of Jonah. And we read, And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time. Wow, this is one of the, probably the most comforting verses in Scripture for us, because how many times has that happened to us, that God has given us a second chance that we've messed up, and yet God has let us start out afresh. Um, and there's a few examples in Scripture uh, of people that have got it right the second time. Uh, And it just shows of of God's grace all the way through. Um, In the Old Testament, uh, we read in Exodus 32 that Moses came down from the mountain with the law. The people had made the calf and the the law was broken. The people had already rebelled against the Lord. God had delivered them from Egypt through the Red Sea and all these things. But later on, Moses goes up a second time up the mountain and receives the law again on tablets of stone, uh, written with the finger of God. The only part of the scripture that God actually wrote himself um, and he comes down, and this time the people obey, and they promise to, to walk with the Lord. So again, there was that second chance. Uh, we also, uh, in Numbers 13, have the account of the spies that went into Canaan to check out the land. There was giants there, and uh, they, were, they were very fearful, and they didn't want to go in. Although Joshua and Caleb said, we can do it, God will give us the victory, they wouldn't go. Uh, the people rebelled against the Lord again. And because of that, they were made to wait 38 years, and they wandered uh, in the wilderness till that generation had died. And then we read in Joshua 2 of the conquest, when they finally obeyed. Again, God gave them another chance to go in. Israel themselves rejected their Messiah. Uh, plenty of scriptures talk about that. Um, they rejected uh, the one who had come to them. Um, but there will come a day that Israel will gladly receive him. Uh, Matthew 23:39 talks about the fact that Jesus said, "Um, you'll not see me again until that day when you say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. And Israel will one day be glad to receive their Messiah. They will look upon him whom they pierced and mourn. Uh, It's actually one of the the prerequisites of the second coming that Israel repent and realize that Jesus was their Messiah. Uh, It's interesting, studying the scriptures. Israel uh, also were a witness, uh, or should have been a witness. Deuteronomy 28:10 uh, and other passages uh, in Scripture talk about the fact that they should have been a witness to the world uh, of the God um, who was their God, their national God, the God of Israel. But they should have been a witness to the nations. And instead, because of their continued disobedience, plenty of Scriptures talk about the fact that they became an astonishment to the nations around them. But again, Israel themselves will become a sign to all nations. And in fact, even today, as we look, uh, the fact that the nation of Israel exists is a testimony to the God who has engineered circumstances, engineered history, um, so that it goes exactly according to what the Word of God has said. And then us. We were dead in trespasses and sins, it says in Ephesians 2, verse 1. And the same verse tells us that He's made us alive. You see, God has given us a second chance. We were all in that position that unless God had given us an option, a way out. We, we were done for. We had no way of, of uh, getting back into a right relationship with the Holy God. But because of what Jesus did, praise him, we can. So Jonah has his second chance. And uh, we read in verse 2, that, he was, that God said, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it, uh, the preaching that I bid thee. Now, it, God was going to give him the words to say. Very interesting when you, we find out later what words those were. Um, and Jonah was to go and preach to this city. Um, he doesn't tell him immediately what to say, and sometimes that's the way it is with us. God will give us a mission, give us a calling, and we kind of go in a little at the deep end. Um, but God, when we get to the point that we need to have revealed to us what we need next, the next step, uh, then God will do that. Uh, and I believe, that, again, that Jonah here was... Um, you see, we talked last time the fact that the reason Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh was because they were his country's enemy, and he was fearful that uh, Assyria, the Assyrian nation which the Nineveh was the capital, uh, were going to come and destroy Israel. We talked last time of how um, cruel the the Ninevites were and the Assyrians were, and they used to uh, capture their enemies and put fishhooks in their noses and lead them along and sew them together and all sorts of horrible things like that. They were very nasty people. And um, they were fearful. Israel were fearful. Uh, and Jonah did not want to go and convert these people because he could see what was coming. Um, or so he thought. Um, and I'm sure that Jonah at this point starts to think, well, maybe God is going to destroy them. And this is just, they need to be told beforehand. So I, I'm sure that part of Jonah's motivation for going for the second time, uh, apart from the fish incident, which had helped him to have a bit more clarity of the situation in terms of understanding God's will, um, he, he really believed, I think, that, that God was going to destroy them, uh, or at least hoped that that was going to be the case. Um, just so you can see there, that's the map of the, the area. Um, that's Joppa, the seaport. we round about that area. Um, now, probably the fish deposited Jonah somewhere along this shore here, um, but wherever it was, it had been about a 500-mile journey up to Nineveh, uh, which is where he was going to. Uh, and again, um, Nineveh may have looked something like that. We know that the city was a big city, um, there were, the walls were about 100 feet high. Uh, there was towers around the walls that were about 200 feet high and there was about 1,500 of these towers. Very, very big place, uh, very imposing. And Assyria uh, were the dominant world empire at the time of, of the known world. So Jonah arose and went up to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an ex- exceedingly great city of three days' journey. Now that... Um, we believe it's in reference to the size of, that it was, or the time it would have taken to walk around the edge of the city. Um, uh, as I said, they were, the Assyrians were, were probably, well, they, they were the largest nation on earth at the time. And I suspect they knew Jonah was coming. You see, when the, the, the people on the boat, they thrown Jonah over the wall, but before that they thrown all the cargo. They had nothing left. There was no point in carrying on their journey. And I you can imagine that Mr. Saylor coming home and Mrs. Saylor saying to him, you know, oh, you know, you're you're back earlier than I thought. You know, interesting. And he said, Well, you know, it's- fish and boat and stuff and storm and man and stuff and you imagine the conversation and it wouldn't have been a quiet thing people would have shared people would have talked about that and because Assyria were the nation they were they would have no doubt had scouts and people in different areas and I'm sure that the story of what had happened with Jonah would have filtered back through to these people and I'm sure that they were expecting Jonah to come now that the text doesn't say that exactly but there's an indication of that we'll look at in a moment that that they had this idea that Jonah was going to be on his way Um, So Jonah Rose goes to Nineveh, um, which is this this big city. Um, And and again, if you just imagine the the feeling for the Ninevites, a prophet of the Lord God of Israel. And again, the God of Israel was feared by the surrounding nations. They all had their own gods, but the God of Israel was the one they'd heard about that had destroyed the Egyptians, and uh, that had given the land of Canaan to Israel, the land that's still disputed today. And to hear that a prophet of God was coming their way, I'm sure there was a bit of a stir going on. And we read in verse 4, And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey, and he cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. These are the only prophetic words in the book itself. Uh, this, is, this is what Jonah was saying. This is eight words. Um, very, very interesting as we look at this. Um, this um, we talked last time about the fact that Jonah... Um, There have been accounts, and we won't go through them all again this morning, but of people that have been swallowed by um, big sea creatures, some by fish, some by whales. And and I won't labour the point because I think it was probably mentioned last time, but Jonah would have been bleached by the the gastric juices inside the the animal. Um, And um, people that have been in that situation before have come out, all their hair follicles are dissolved and everything else. Jonah would have been probably quite a state when he came out. and you can imagine Jonah walking in and people just looking at this guy, that if they'd heard that he was coming. And we read that, that Jesus himself said uh, in Luke 11, 29 and 30, when the people were gathered thick together, a lot of people there, he began to say, uh, this is an evil generation. They seek a sign and there shall, be no, uh, shall, shall no sign be given it, but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah was a sign unto the Ninevites, so shall also the Son of Man be be to this generation. So Jesus said that Jonah was actually a sign. It wasn't just what he said, but he himself was a sign. And from that we can you know, fairly safely deduce that it was probably because of this, this uh, situation where he'd been in this fish. And uh, it turned out all of a sudden, I mean, chances are he was still a bit smelly as well. And he was a sign to the people. They looked at him. And then uh, Jonah proclaims his message about 40 days. Um, and It's interesting, as we look at this this, this 40 days thing, uh, in Scripture, there's various 40 days. We've we've said before, there are no meaningless details in the Bible. It's something really important to take on board. Every number, every place name are there by deliberate design. Every word that is in in the text, referring obviously to the original, to the Hebrew and the Greek, and uh, a little bit in Daniel was in Aramaic as well. But the original text was inspired by God, and every number, every detail. Jesus himself said that, that not one yod, the little Hebrew letter, or tittle, a little decorative hook that adorns Hebrew letters, not one of those things would pass from the Lord till all be fulfilled. And as we start to understand more and more about um, Bible codes and some of the intricacies of the Bible, every bit of Scripture is important, which is why we can't just pick and choose the bits that suit us. Because you don't know that if you choose to take out a bit, oh, I don't think that's true. That, that bit is so important. We've, we've talked before about these things. We'd love to spend more time this morning. But the Bible is accurate in, in every little detail. Um, forty is a number that seems to indicate um, some sort of trouble or trial or judgment or something. first time we read a forty in Scripture was the 40 days of rain at the flood. Uh, we think it's 40 days of mourning when Jacob died, uh, Joseph's father. Um, and then Moses was up the mountain 40 days. And you might think, well, well, that wasn't really a trial. But it was for the people. It was a test for the people that were at the base of the mountain. Because what did they do? Well, they decided they were going to go and build this golden calf. And it was a test for them. They failed it. Also, the 40 days of spying out the land. And the spies came back and they said, Oh, no, no, we're not going to go in. this giants there. It was too scary. Um, for 40 days, Goliath presented himself before Israel, um, taunting them. Uh, and eventually, this little shepherd boy, who has faith in God, turns up. And that little boy became their next king. Um, Elijah was sustained for 40 days on one meal. Uh, read about that in First Kings. And that was at the lowest point of, of Elijah's life in his ministry. He, was, he basically said, Lord, look, just let me die. I've had enough. You know, he, he thought everybody was against him. Uh, and God uh, teaches him a very, very powerful lesson just after that. Jesus himself was for 40 days in the wilderness after which he was tempted. So this idea of 40 days, when you get numbers in the Bible, there's always a pattern, there's always a theme. Uh, be sensitive to that and it's, it's, it's fun sometimes doing studies. Um, Jonah began to enter the city days journey and he cried out and said, Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, I don't know about you, but it just suddenly occurred to me that Jonah would have probably been speaking Hebrew, the Assyrians would have been speaking Aramaic or whatever it would have been at the time. And there's been a bit of a, a, a kind of a lang- language problem. Now Joan might have been bilingual. But the interesting thing is that 40 days, Nineveh, and overthrown are basically the same words in any language. Oh, sorry, in any In, in the, the two languages concerned there. Uh, the, the same words that have been used. So even if they didn't understand the whole sentence, the four words, 40 days, Nineveh, overthrown, they'd have understood that, which I think is just quite an interesting point. I remember when I was uh, younger, I used to work for, for BT, and we went over to France, and uh, we were being shown around a, a big building for France Telecom, and uh, one of my less intelligent friends decided he was going to ta- start uh, picking a bit of fun at one of these guys who was wearing a wig, uh, and he couldn't speak English, this guy, and we were being shown around by another interpreter, uh, and he kept going, oh, you know, about his toupee, and after a while he realized that toupee is a French word, so this guy knew exactly what he was saying. Um, it was just one of those things that so- some words work in different languages, and I believe this was the case here. The overthrown bit, it's the same word that was used regarding Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, So as Jonah's proclaiming this message, the people understand what's going on. They realize this is a big thing that's going to happen. That The God of Israel has sent this prophet to proclaim to them that they are going to be overthrown. There wouldn't have been any doubt in their minds. And uh, we get to verse 5. So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put sackcloth from uh, from the greatest and even to the least. For the word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he laid his robe from him, and covered him with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. This is incredible. This is the, the king of the leader of the, the world at that time, humbles himself before God. And again, I'm sure that he they, they they knew the stories about the God of Israel, and they were fearful of this. And obviously the people had heard the story, and they come tell the king, and immediately this is the king's reaction to the situation. Uh, incredible. And, uh, yeah, it just, uh, it's incredible that the people of Nineveh repented, as we're going to see. You know, they, they listened to, to what Jonah said, and yet the people of Israel so often chose not to um, throughout history. And then verse seven says, and he calls it. This is the king, and he caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd or flock, taste anything; uh, let them not feed nor drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn every one from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Again, the, the king's admitting here that they were a violent people, that they, you know, they, they, were, they had these evil ways. And the king is saying, let's turn from this, let's repent before the God of Israel, which they do. It's interesting that in doing that, they were probably made themselves very vulnerable to their enemies. And it just struck me that in this situation, they were more afraid of God than they were of man. And there's a lesson in that for us, that we need to be more concerned about God's opinion of us than what man thinks. So often we get swayed by what our friends might think about us if they found we were a Christian or whatever else. We need not worry about those things. It's God's opinion of us that is the important thing. It goes on, and the king says, Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away his fierce anger that we perish not? You see, the king was not a fool, because he'd realized that they'd been given 40 days. If God wanted to destroy them, He could have done it immediately, but God gave him a period of time. And right before the king, is this prophet that's no doubt bleached from his experience with the fish as a sign, as a testimony to God's grace and God's mercy. This prophet, they'd have heard the story. that He'd run away from God, and yet God had given him a second chance. And the king thought, well, maybe God will give us a second chance as well. Who can tell if, if God will turn and repent and turn away his fierce anger that we perish not? So he knew that there was this chance that maybe that the God of Israel that was threatening to judge them. You see, God doesn't want to judge people. God's intention was not that never be destroyed, but they repent. Uh, in 2 Peter, we read this passage in the last part. It, says it talks about the Lord. It talks about the judgment that is coming on this world, and it says the Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God does not want anybody to perish. God does not want anybody to go to hell. People have said, you know, if God is a God of love, why does He send people to hell? That's the wrong question. The question is, why would anybody choose hell when God has offered us heaven? God has given everybody a choice. Every one of us this morning, everybody we meet, God has given us a choice. We can choose to go to heaven because of what Jesus has done, or we can choose hell. Why would anybody choose hell? It's not that God wants anybody to go to hell. The, devil, the hell was made for the devil and his angels, not for mankind. But unless we choose the way out that God has given, there remains no other, no other way, no other sacrifice. In Acts uh, 17, uh, talking of past times, truly these times of ignorance got overlooked. But now commands all men everywhere to repent. That, that word commands, uh, the Greek word is uh, parangelo, which means to enjoin or to urge strongly. So, so God is urging strongly all men everywhere to repent. God so wants people to repent. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So God wanted the people of Nineveh to repent. But I just want to just throw in something here that is important because sometimes we can get to that kind of, ah, well, God will forgive us, we'll be all right type thing. And even as Christians, we we get sometimes into a little comfortable, um, you know, well, you know, I know God, and even we can look at Jonah's situation and God gave him a second chance and Nineveh were given a second chance. and We think, well, if we mess up, God will give us another chance. We go back, ask forgiveness. But Galatians 6, 6 and 7 there says, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. You know, don't play games with God. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. There's a limit to God's patience. Uh, the verse we looked at in 2 Peter talks about the fact that God is, is long-suffering, but there will come a time that his judgment will come. It's the same with Israel, as we're just about to see. A very interesting bit of scripture here. Um, then Peter came to him and said, this is from Matthew 18, 21-22, to and it just says, Peter came to him and said, Look, how often shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? till seven times? And Jesus said unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Now, if you remember what I said earlier, there's no meaningless details in the Bible. Everything is there by deliberate design of the Holy Spirit. Every detail. This wasn't just a casual remark. Jesus wasn't just saying, well, you forgive him loads. Jesus was actually giving you a pattern. And it's very interesting. Uh, anybody's good at math? 70 times seven is 490. It is, believe me, it is. Okay, 70 times seven is 490. In effect, Jesus said you should forgive him 490 times. Now, the Jews, Peter would have understood what Jesus said. And one of the reasons he would have understood that is because if we look, oh, just in a second, if we're going to look in a second about Israel's history and you'll see a pattern. 490 years appearing uh, and the way God dealt with them. Just as a, as a little side note, uh, in the NIV and also the New Century version, this passage is translated, uh, it says, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. You'll agree that's different. You'd be, be careful with some of the new translations of the Bible because they have twisted, subtly, some of the details. All right. Now, I'm not saying you should throw those versions away, but... The King James has got mistakes in it. I'm not saying it's completely foolproof. Uh, It's a translation as well. But the King James uh, does seem to be the most accurate translation we have. Now, If you're doing serious Bible study, it's worth just checking things against the King James to see what it says. Um, I I even used to use the the New King James because it's easy to read. And yet there's little subtle things in there that are just a little bit different. So it's worth, if you're going to check and do some serious study, uh, to have a King James Bible as well. That's 77 times is completely different. and uh, Maybe the translators didn't understand. Maybe they just thought, wow, it's just a big number, doesn't matter. But it does matter, these things are important. And as we'll see, periods of 490 years in Israel's history, there was 490 years uh, where they weren't being judged between Canaan and the kingdom. Okay? So between them moving in with Joshua into the land up until the kingdom that was set up by King Saul, there was 490 years where they weren't in judgment. From the kingdom, from, so from King Saul when it started to the servitude, when they were taken away captive, the Jews were taken away captive into Babylon. Another period of 490 years. And after that point, God to, got to that point and then judgment came and they were taken away captive for 70 years as uh, Jeremiah prophesied. And There's a, a, another one, very, very interesting one uh, from the decree of Artaxerxes, which we read about in uh, the, the book of Nehemiah. Um, from the, the day that the decree was given, this is all talked about in uh, Daniel chapter 9, one of the most incredible prophecies in the entire Bible. From the, the ten, from, from the decree until the 10th of Nisan, AD 32, which was the very day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem, okay, was a period of 483 years to the day. Now that leaves just seven years to get our 490. That seven years are seven years yet to come that we call, as a, as a general thing, the tribulation. And it's very, very interesting. If you look at these details, everything in Scripture fits incredibly. Just, I'd love to spend more on that this morning, but we we'll move on. Just to, to tie this up, it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. Don't play games with God. Don't just assume we can go on in sin and God will keep forgiving us so we can keep doing things and coming back to Him. Okay, God is a God that is serious and we shouldn't play around. Uh, Proverbs 14 just says, The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to depart from the snares of death we need to fear the lord we we get so often into this you know god's a loving father and oh, that's true that's great that's, that's that's what the scripture teaches us but god is a holy and awesome god and we mustn't assume that he's just going to ignore all our messing about okay god wants us to walk a holy life before him be holy for i am holy says the lord so, uh, in verse 10 now, it says, And God saw their works. So the people of Nineveh repented, okay? And that God saw their works. So in, in James we read about the fact that the faith, uh, faith without works is dead. So it's, it's all right saying, well, you know, repent, you know, yeah, and say it. But God wants to see something from that, an, an actual action, a, a way of, of living or, or, or some fruit, if you like. God saw their works they turned from their evil way and God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them and did it not now just to clarify this this word repented in the New King James it actually translated relented which is probably a, a better understanding of it God doesn't repent doesn't, God doesn't um, repentance as we understand it is a turning from sin God obviously doesn't sin um, and God doesn't change his mind this wasn't something that God had decided to do and then decided to do something different um, this was something that, that God knew all along uh, so he, he kind of giving them this, this, this um, opportunity to repent, wanting them to do so. Uh, the, the word repented in the, in the Hebrew is this uh, nokam, uh, which means to sigh or to breathe strongly. And uh, It's like God breathed a sigh of relief when they repented. Um, now, just to illustrate this, uh, I, I support Charlton Athletic, who are currently, I'll just have you know, top of the premiership, joint top with uh, some other club, I can't remember what they were. And... Um, for the second week running as well at the top of the premiership um, and I mention it now because probably any other time in the year I probably probably you to say that um, but last night I, I'd been watching it in the afternoon and we beat Wigan 1-0 yesterday uh, which was great but I watched it on match of the day in the evening and I'm sitting there you know i was really tense and, and we scored the goal yes and, we got it. and when the, the final whistle blew ah with a sigh of relief I knew the result but it was still nice when that final whistle blew, he said, I knew what was going to happen. I'd heard the result. And I think it's in the same kind of way that God breathed his sigh of relief. He knew what was going to happen. But it pleased him that these people repented. And then we go on into chapter 4. <laughs> but it pleased, this pleased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. It's incredible, isn't it, that Jonah, after all he'd gone through, you know, he, he, I guess he still hoped these people were going to be judged and that God was going to smoke them out. But that didn't happen. And he's angry about it. Who's he angry with? He's angry with God. Incredible. But we laugh, but we know it's the same with us. So so many times we get angry with God. Uh, Jonah's true colors are revealed at this point, aren't they? He prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord. Was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God, and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repentest thee, I know that you're a kind God and you're gracious and you're merciful and Jonah's really unhappy about this but just a little while earlier he was really glad that God was a merciful God and was slow to anger and of great kindness because that's what brought him back out of the fish. So often we're like that, aren't we? That, you know, we have these kind of two standards and it never ceases to amaze me the number of Christians that bear grudges and if that hits home this morning then we've got no right to bear grudges. Matthew eighteen twenty three to 34, if you make a note, read it when you get home. Jesus talked about the situation of th- this, man forgiven, uh, a, somebody, sorry, uh, this man that was forgiven a relatively small debt. Then goes goes and finds somebody, sorry, this man that was forgiven a huge debt. Then he goes and finds a man that's forgiven a, a little, and he, this guy wants to be forgiven a little, and the man won't forgive him. And eventually the, the, the man that wouldn't forgive ends up getting put back in prison until he's paid the, the whole lot. But you know we're so often like that we have a standard we, we tend to somebody upsets us and we get really cross and we expect an apology now, how many times do we upset others and how many times is it you know I remember reading St Oswald Chambers once said that very often the people that annoy us and wind us up are God's way of showing us what we're like and so often that's the case verse 3 then so, therefore, now, O Lord, take, I beseech you, my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And Jonah's really in a bit of a grump at this point, isn't he? And there's a little bit more to it, because he's thinking, how can I go back to the king of Israel and say, you know, our enemies are all fine and well, don't worry. You know, he was saying, it's better for me to die, what have I got now? Because he was still fearful that the people of Nineveh would eventually come and, and take them. And he was saying, there's just no point in me living. And God says to him, and the Lord said, do i so well to be angry? Funnily enough, Jonah chooses not to answer that question. It's chapter five, Verse 5. Uh, so Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city and there made him a booth. And made himself a little tent and sat under it in the shadow uh, till he might see it and see what would become of the city. See, even at this point, I think Jonah's still thinking, well, maybe God will destroy them. So he decides he's going to sit there for the next few days, up till the 40th day. and Let's just wait and see and, you know... And it says, and God prepared a gourd. And this is a kind of a big uh, vine that grows in the desert. Uh, and he made it to come up over Jonah, that it might be a shadow over his head. Now, we know there's a lot of um, uh, plants out in the desert lands that grow very quickly. Some of them, uh, literally within a few days, grow up. And, uh, and God had prepared this. Now, in a sense, again, it doesn't matter what type. But I've read various commentaries that talk about what type of plant it was and whether it was possible for it to grow in a few days. It doesn't matter. It's the same situation as the fish. God prepared it. You know, God can do anything. That's just the way God is. Um, so God had prepared uh, this this vine if you like uh, they come up with Jonah then it might be a shadow over his head to deliver him from his grief he was getting sunburnt and he didn't like it and uh, so Jonah was exceedingly glad so he's sitting there nice in a nice bit of shade and it's, it's quite nice and everything's comfortable and he's just going to wait and see what happens but God prepares something else now he, he prepared a fish he prepared the gourd now he prepares a worm uh, uh, the, 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 in Hebrew it could be worms Okay, so it might just be just one big worm it could be a few of them uh, and God prepared a worm that when the morning rose the, morning rose the next day um, and it smote the gourd, that it withered. So this, this, this vine that, that has given him shelter all of a sudden withers and now he's back out in the heat. And on top of that, verse 8, and it comes to pass that um, when the sun did arise, that God prepared a venom, venomous east wind uh, and the sun beat upon the head of Jonah, that he fainted and wished himself to die. There he goes again, oh, it's better for me to die. And, and said, it's better for me to die than to live. You see, again, he's now crossed because this, this, this vine that was giving him shelter has now gone. And this is really starting to get to the bit where God was uh, trying to get him to understand. And God said to Jonah, Doest thou well to be angry for the gourd? And Jonah said, I do well to be angry, even unto death. Now, the actual the Hebrew there, um, it's almost an expletive. Uh, you can imagine what Jonah's responding. You know, he's really a bit miffed that this, this, this gourd has been taken away and he's lost his, his comfort. But then God says to him, then the Lord said, Thou hast pity on the gourd, for which thou hast neither laboured, neither made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should not I spend Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than six score thousand persons, that cannot discern between their right hand and their left, and also much cattle? God saying that there was 120,000, that's six score, 120,000 Children that couldn't discern between their right hand and the left—they were they're just little ones. Now, on top of that, there were the adults. But God is saying, you know, just what about the kids? You know, it's not fair that I judge the city because of them." We, we find out about this as well um, back in Genesis, don't we, where um, Abraham is visited by these uh, these three men, and uh, we find out um, that the Lord stays and talks to him, and Abraham asks the questions, you know, about Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah, and you know, would you destroy it if there's there's fifty there? Well, what about forty-five? And it keeps going down. And eventually, when the angels go to, to Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, they take Lot out. But it's not just kind of a, a, a being merciful. Um, the fact is, they, they said they cannot destroy the city until he's gone out of there. God cannot destroy the righteous with the wicked. Now, it's another one of those things that, that adds a lot of weight to, to the fact that we have got to be taken out of this world before the tribulation starts simply because God cannot judge the righteous with the wicked. The tribulation is God's judgment on this world. So we have to have gone. It's just this theme throughout Scripture. And God is saying to to Jonah, you know, you've done nothing about this this vine. You know, it's grown up and it's now died, and you're now upset about that. But what about these people that I've, I've labored for? There's various models in the book. Uh, of Jonah we mentioned last time we we'll just quickly go through them just, just, just to close uh, we see Jonah as a type of Christ Jesus himself pointed to this he died to save others if you remember Jonah's on the boat and he he sacrifices himself because he knows it's the only way those people would survive but it's the same with Jesus Jesus died to save others he went down to Hades or Sheol um, Hades is the, the Hebrew Sheol is the, is the Greek Uh, He was there for three days and three nights. He was resurrected by the power of God. He brought a message of hope to the Gentiles. It's the same of of Jesus and also of Jonah. And he illuminated God's plan to Israel. See, through this, Israel would have realized that God is not just the God of Israel, but God loves all people. Also, we see as Jonah is a type of Israel. He was called to be a witness to the Gentiles. Um, which Israel were. Israel disobeyed and rejected the Lord in the same way Jonah did. Um, they were cast, Israel had been cast into the sea of nations and, and almost consumed in the same way that Jonah was. They cried out to the Lord from the depths and were actually given life again. 1948. Uh, can a nation bring forth in one day? Yeah, it did. In 1948, Israel became a nation again after almost 2,000 two years of history. Uh, one of the most incredible miracles of history, to the very day, actually, uh, as prophesied by Ezekiel. And in 1967, when they got the uh, uh, East Jerusalem and the West Bank, which is all the dispute at the moment, they got that back to the very day, as prophesied by Ezekiel, to the very day. Scripture is so precise. But Jonah becomes a witness to the Gentiles eventually, and Israel will become a witness to the Gentiles. Plenty of scriptures. And then finally, the thing that really hits home is Jonah is a type of you, a type of us. We were called by God. We ran away from his voice. We go down to the depths and cry out to God. But he puts a new song in our mouths. A song of praise to our God, yeah? and We're given a second chance and a new life. And we're commissioned to witness of the coming judgment. God allows us to go through windstorms, to show where our heart is. You see, the the situation with Jonah, the windstorm and and the heat and everything else just revealed where his heart was. He wasn't interested in things of God. He was interested in in his own desires, his own understanding. And God allows us sometimes to go through trials and tribulations. Uh, I know that the ladies have been going through um, Faith in the Night Seasons, a a book and a study by uh, Nancy Misler. Um, it's very, very worthwhile going through. I've got the book and I'm about halfway through, but it's incredible how many things ring true of our own lives that God allows us to go through. as The scripture talks about these night seasons, that God does it to show where our heart is. God just wants us to be closer to him. He wants us to understand. and He loves us and labors to make us grow. You see, God had done that with, with the, the Ninevites uh, and, and really wanted them to repent, and they did repent. And it's the same for us. God wants us. Just to, to learn to trust Him. You know, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Proverbs 3 talks about. Um, Psalm 39, just in closing, just talks about the fact that, Lord, made me to know my end. And what is the measure of my days that I may know how frail I am? Indeed, you have made my days as hand breaths, And my age is nothing before you. Certainly every man is at his best state but a vapor. You know, we cannot afford to waste our time pursuing the pleasures of this life, the things that we're into, the things that we want to see, time is, is running out. We can see from, from the events taking place in the world that God's prophetic clock is ticking. And, and prophetic, or prophecies are being fulfilled almost on a daily basis at the moment. It's an incredible time of history that we live in. In fact, uh, Chuck Misler says, and I completely concur with him, he says that we live at a time in history of which the Bible speaks more about than any other time in history including the time that Jesus walked the shores of Galilee or climbed the mountains of Judea the time we live in history the bible is saying more about than any other part of any other time in history you know we cannot afford to waste our time and uh, in 1 john 2 16 to 17 he says for all that is in the world the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes the pride of life is not of the father but is of the world And the world is passing away, and the lust thereof. But he that does the will of God abides forever. This applies to all of us, particularly us young men, because I put myself still in that category of being a little young. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. They ring true in my own life. You know, it's so easy to get sidetracked by other things in this world and we mustn't allow those things to have a foothold. The devil seeks so much to pull us down. and we've, It's funny in some senses, with the advances of technology, with the internet and everything else, it's never been easier to study God's word, to listen to great Bible commentaries online, to, to really get some good teaching. But at the same time, it's never been easier to go the other way. The temptations out there are so huge. But there's promises in Scripture to those that overcome those are prepared to stand on God's word and to trust God, even though we don't understand, To just to trust God. Because we know at the end that God's ways are the right ways. And we've, we've proven it in our own life. And then finally Romans 13, 11 and 14 just says, And do this, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is fast spent and the day is at hand. Therefore, Let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. God loves us. God cares just as much about us as he did about the city of Nineveh. And he so desperately wants us to walk with him. The challenge is... What are we going to do about it? Are we going to do what Jonah did and try and run away from the Lord? I mean, how can you run away from a God that is everywhere? We can't do it. And we'll only hurt ourselves in doing it. We only hinder... You see, God will get us to where he wants to get us to. And sometimes we can just just do like Israel did and spend another 38 years getting back to the same point. You know, let's take the shortcut and go God's way because we know that, that Jesus came to give us life in abundance. You know, the way that we should be living is that way and we should be able to be seen. Just uh, finally, we heard, I heard somebody this week talk about the fact, uh, somebody came up to him and said, you know, are you a Christian? And he said, well, you tell me. And I thought, wow. People should be able to look at us and see that we're a Christian. If people look at you and don't know whether you're a Christian, why not? You see, Jesus has bought us at a price. We belong to him. We're his. We've got so much. We've got nothing to be ashamed of. He's given us so much. We need to really make a stand and just let people see that we've got the best thing in this world and the world to come, which is Jesus.